The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, just want to thank you for joining us today. Um, You received a survey, most likely, on your way in. This is a demographic survey, helps us understand more about who's sitting in front of us, so uh, please fill that out, and on on your way out today, you can drop it in a bin on your way out. If you're online watching, there'll be a link in the comments. You can also fill one out online as well. So uh, we are continuing our study in 1 John, so we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4 today. Uh, The title is The Love Test Number 3. This is not a, um, a newlywed uh, game show, although it does kind of sound like that. We're not bringing anybody up on stage and interviewing on how well they know their spouse. But it is a reminder of the fact that John is talking about love all throughout this uh, book so far and even continuing into chapters four and five here. So I want you to give you a heads up uh, for the end of our time together, just so you're aware and give you fair warning. At the end of our time, we're actually going to have two songs, and we're going to have some time where we get to focus a little extra on what we've heard from God's Word. So I know the temptation is, as soon as the band gets up here, is to jet out the door to get first in line uh, wherever you're going to eat, okay? So I'm going to request of you to sacrifice your stomach. My stomach will be growling too and just sacrifice that just for today so that you can experience a little bit deeper uh, of a time of dwelling on what God has to say to you from this word. Not what I have to say, but what the Spirit hopefully will move in you this morning and let this time at the end be a time of focus uh, for the coming weeks. So as we get into 1 John 4, we're looking at verses 7 to 21 today. Uh, We think about the topic of Gnosticism. Now, it's a big word. Uh, We need to understand a little bit about it in order to understand who John was writing to in this book. And so for us, we can gather some info that I gathered from Gary Derrickson. Uh, uh, He writes a commentary that says, Gnostics adopted the dualistic view that only the non-material or spirit was good. While anything material was evil, based on the Greek dualistic concept that matter is evil and spirit is good, Gnosticism concluded that for God to be truly good, he had to be pure spirit and could not have created a material universe. They concluded that Jesus could not have had a physical body, claimed that Jesus only appeared to have a physical body, but in reality was a spirit and so did not suffer and die on the cross. He only appeared to have done so. So this is who John is writing to. He's writing to believers living in this type of environment. So that helps us understand why John would write things that deal with the body and deal with physical acts of loving others and and things like that and different illustrations that he gives to help us see he's combating this mindset. So last week we looked at the concept of, uh, in chapter three, uh, the fact that if you hate somebody, that you are equal to a murderer, which is kind of heavy stuff to really deal with uh, on a Sunday morning, but that's the reality of what is said here. Now it's important though for us, and I think Dave helped us understand this, and hopefully we can understand it even further today, is that just removing hate from your life isn't good enough. That just makes you a non-hateful person, but it doesn't really make you a loving person. So when you take something away and you allow the Spirit to pull something away from you, 
You also need to replace it with something else and allow the Spirit to do in you a work that you can't do on your own, which is our point number one, love one another. We have to focus on this idea that we are to love one another and it's important for us to see that this in this passage, it's been mentioned just in this passage alone over 26 times in one form or another, loving others. And it's been mentioned hundreds of times throughout our time in the last five weeks. So I think it's maybe something John wanted to stress and for us to get a clue on, right? So we're called to love one another and he even shows that love by his way he talks to them. He says, beloved, and another time he says, dear children. So he helps them uh, with these, our dear friends, and he helps them understand that he loves them. So in verse seven, let's start off there. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Anybody catch the theme? You see here he's saying in verse eight, he's saying God is the essence of love. God is love. And if you don't love, you can't claim to know God. Chapter two, verse 29 in the same book says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So it's an evidence, it's practicing, it's physically acting out this love. I'll give you a morbid example because that's oftentimes how my brain works. A weird example would be this. If I took the time to get a racing stripe and a number tattooed down my side, right? And I decided, okay, I'm going to drink some motor oil and gasoline. And I'll even take my legs and chop them off and replace them with with, uh, racing tires. And I go down to the local drag strip and academy, right? And I go there on a Friday night or Saturday night whenever they race. And I pop in and I pay the entry fee. And I show up on that track. They're going to laugh me right off the track. Like, what are you doing? I mean, it worked in turbo, because he was a snail, right? Because snails somehow can do that. But it's not going to work with me. They're going to say, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. Get out of here. And then it would have been a waste of really good tires, right? I know it sounds weird, but in the same way for us, when we actually say we love God, we join Bible studies We get under discipleship and accountability and we buy another book on Amazon that a friend told us about that we need to read uh, to to promote our spiritual well-being and add it to the stack next to our bed, right? And we just keep consuming. But if we never act out this love, then we are liars. All we are is consumers. And so it's a challenge for us to really consider, do I love others in action? So he says God is love, and in the Greek language, I think it's important to note this on the side kind of, is that this language that he used in the Greek can't be reversed. Sometimes the Greek language, you can take a word here and move it over here and it'll mean the same thing. But in this statement, this simple three-word statement, God is love, you can't do it, the Greek limits it. 
and it limits it for a purpose so that you can't turn it around and say love is God. You can't say that your opinion, your your definition of love, however you think love should be expressed or whatever love should be called, you don't get to determine it. That it's only defined by God himself. And so we don't get to impose that even in our culture and in our opinions. It doesn't matter because if it doesn't line up with God's word, then it's not love. Only God is love. He is the essence of love. In verse 9, it talks about how this love is demonstrated. How is it? Look at verse 9. It says his only son. He uses this in a couple chapters back specifically to help us see that he is a one of a kind, unique. No other son, no other being could do this. The only one, the unique one. And what did he do? Why was he sent John 3.16, one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is why it was sent, so that we could have an eternal relationship with the Father. This is why he was sent. The way, the truth, the life. And then down in verse 10, we, we can see that we really have no real love to offer on our own. Now, you can try to love somebody. Maybe you're in a relationship. I see college students over here. Maybe they're dating, and, and it might be a situation, you know, where they're, they're really trying to show love, but if you date long enough, it's going to break down. Sorry. It's not going to be perfect forever, right? In a spouse relationship, a husband and wife, even with children, it, it, it breaks down. We try our best to love, but humanly speaking, it just breaks down. And it just doesn't work in our own power. We have no real love to offer on our own. Reminds me, uh, again, because of the way my brain works, of an animated movie uh, called A Bug's Life. This is an old school one. I don't even know if it was around when you guys were little. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know how old you guys are. But this thing's been around a while. A Bug's Life, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll spoil it for you, because if you haven't gotten around to it by now, you probably never see it. But... Bug's life is, you got the ants, and they had to put their little offering on this stone, and they had to give it for the grasshoppers, because the grasshoppers were coming, basically, to get their pay uh, for the ants literally being alive and allowed to breathe, and if the grasshoppers showed up, the ants would go down into their little anthill and hide and tremble, hopefully that the offering was enough to satisfy these grasshoppers. And again, spoil it. Uh, some idiot knocks all the, the, the uh, little stuff on the rock down off the cliff and the grasshoppers uh, kill them all. No, they didn't, they didn't do that. Uh, that would have been a better movie, but uh, sorry. They didn't kill them all. Uh, it did end up working out. But the idea is that these grasshoppers instilled fear and they had to sacrifice in this altar. And for us, oftentimes, we have this situation where we feel like we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to impress God and add these whole things up and then God will love us and then we can experience God's love by just doing this, doing more, doing more. And in reality, we have to understand, oh man, there's a great word, it's a big one, but it's a great word here in verse 10. It's called propitiation. Anytime I see a big word like that, I need to look into what it says again because I need to remind myself 
not being the sharpest tool in the shed, maybe like you, I don't know, maybe some of you are a lot smarter than me, but I need to look this up. What does propitiation mean, right? It says, averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. There is the wrath of God that exists against sin. And we can try to offer all we want. Our good works can pile on up all we want, but nothing can uh, dissuade that wrath of God. But instead of us working so hard and, and fearing and trembling, instead, he offers his one and only son as a sacrifice once for all. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So maybe I can pause here for a second and ask you that question. Have you received that gift? Have you received the gift of his son? Today could be the day where you recognize all your works are like filthy rags to God. But only the work of his son on the cross can save you. Verse 11 gives us a response. What is our response to receiving this love? In verse 11, you can see what the response should be is to love one another. It's a simple statement. It's been made throughout this book so far, as we said. But it's to love one another. It's tied directly to the greatest command Jesus ever gave. Someone asked him, right, what's the greatest command and what did he say? He actually gave two answers that were equal. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. Karen Jobes put it, puts it this way, to act in redemptive love toward others means to forgive those who need our forgiveness just as God forgave us in Christ. It means to spend our time and money meeting the needs of others. What little or great amount you have, we have the opportunity to love in this practical way. I heard this concept played out as I read preparing for this time today. It was a really interesting uh, concept that I never really thought about much. Uh, we just came off Valentine's Day, so it's a pretty applicable time to talk about this, where hopefully if you had a loved one, you expressed it. Some of you, I'm bringing up an old wound because you forgot and you're getting an elbow right now. But most of you uh, maybe expressed it in some way, whether it was a card or flowers or whatever, chocolate-covered strawberries, I don't know what it was, but you expressed it and you were able to hug that person or give them a kiss or something to express your love. And I heard this commentator say, you know, this is uh, an interesting way that we can fulfill this loving one another. As we love one another, we actually have the opportunity to literally hug God. That sounds weird, right? God is a being. We can't see him physically. But we actually have the opportunity when we write notes of encouragement, if we do it in a way that honors God and points them to Jesus, we actually are doing this to God himself, to people that are made in his image. Now, the people aren't God, obviously, but they're made in the image of God, and we get to demonstrate this. Matthew 25 is all over that. When Jesus talks about uh, the disciples are like, Jesus tells them, hey, I was naked, you didn't give me clothes. I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. I was hungry, you didn't give me food. I was in prison, you didn't, uh, you didn't visit me. And the disciples are like, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? And he says, when you 
didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. But when you did it to the least of these, what? You did it unto me. So our love for one another has an opportunity for us to literally show our love for God. It's a physical act that can demonstrate this. And then verse 12, he kind of gives us a summary of what we've just talked about. We see this progression. We receive Jesus' love. Then we love others. Through that, we show God abides in us. And then his love is perfected in us. Now that scripture doesn't say we become perfect, right? But it's a continual act. It's a continual growing. It's a continual understanding. I know more about how to love my wife today than I did May 23rd, 1998. Yeah, it's coming up on 25 years. It's crazy. I didn't know I was that old, but I am. I know a lot more about how to love her. Now, do I do it like I should? Not as often as I should, but I do know more. And in this way, this perfection he's talking about, it comes by abiding in God, loving others, and it grows. And our ability to love others grows. So this perfection is a, long, a lifelong process. You start simply by loving your family well. Love your small group. And launch in a community and be able to love in community with others as well. The opportunities to do this at TBC are endless. You can go on our website and you can see the opportunities with global outreach and local outreach and in our children's ministry and so many other areas. We have a big event coming up that you'll hear of in the future uh, in the middle of April, right after Easter, where we get to demonstrate God's love in a practical way as a church. So we do this as it's lived out. And then the second point today is found in verse 13 and 21. We can find evidence that we are his in this scripture. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Evidence number one, the spirit is alive in us. This back, back up in the chapter three, you can see the similar Verse, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now it's important to note that this is not sentimental human emotion. Do you hear me? The spirit is not sentimental human emotion. It's not necessarily just empathy. Now can the spirit work through emotion? Yes. But oftentimes we make the mistake of putting emotion up here and then we're like, spirit, come alongside here. This is what I'm really feeling right now. So it's important for us to understand the spirit must move first. And in order to hear the spirit moving, we gotta be in the word. We gotta be in prayer. We can't just react all the time. Now there are times where the spirit moves in us like that and we gotta be ready to roll. But there are other times where we have to weigh things and when we weigh them, we don't weigh them with our emotions. We weigh them according to God's word. And so this is evidence number one, that the spirit is alive within us. Evidence number two, verse 14 and 15, we observe, confess, and testify to the savior of the world. It says, and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So you speak. Where does this happen in your life? Where do you actually speak? Let your mouth move and words come out about the gospel and the great things that God has done for you. 
Just because you are shy and introverted does not give, give you an excuse to not testify. Now, it may set you up for a different situation to be in, and you may not be speaking in front of a bunch of people, but you have the responsibility we all do here to testify. And it's a sign that we are his. Our small group has been going through the book of Acts, and even last week we talked about this, where because these leaders, like Philip, were obedient, they were able to minister the gospel in three different cultures. In a few chapters, you see them spreading the gospel to different cultures all the way to Ethiopia because they were obedient and ready to testify. And so we see in Romans 10, 9, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not just some uh, formula for uh, coming to Christ when you're a little kid, right? And you hear that verse and it's like, all right, I did it, I'm good. This is an ongoing process of confessing Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. And it's also confessing not just the historical Jesus, but Jesus as the Son of God. There are many people, including the demons themselves, who would confess the historical Jesus, that he existed, that he lived, and he even did some crazy stuff. But when we testify, we testify that he is the Son of God. Evidence number three, abiding in love leads to confidence in our Savior, verses 16 and 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Again, see that mention? And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. We have confidence. You got this abiding stressed. God is love stressed again. But I'd like to ask this question and let you think about it for a second. Who has inspired confidence in you? Think about that. Who has inspired confidence in you? When I thought about this, I thought of uh, parents, I thought of coaches, teachers, friends, whatever, youth workers, lots of different people that pop up. And then I thought about my own kids, and I thought about, like, uh, especially this example. We used to go to Cedar Ridge right down the road, and we'd take the kids with our small group guys, other dads, and we'd go to this cliff. And that's why we went. It was only because of the cliff. The other things were fun, but it was this awesome cliff that's at times, depending on drought conditions, can be like 20 feet above the water. And we'd take our little kids before they knew better, you know, and take them and set them up on this cliff and just launch them, you know, and not throw them. That would be awesome, but we didn't do that. Uh, but they get up there on this cliff, right? And there were times legitimately as 15 to 20 feet high. And at one time, I remember my little, well, little daughter, she's now a sophomore in high school, but at the time she was little, and I remember her on the edge of that cliff. And she's usually pretty spontaneous, but at this moment, she was kind of frozen with fear. And she's on the edge. And she, you see all her little friends? All her little friends are there, and they're trying to act brave too. Now some of them went ahead of her, like her older sister. And I jumped ahead, but she didn't care because you know, I do dumb stuff all the time. So she's like, I don't trust dad doing dumb things because he always hurts himself. So she didn't find that confidence in me, but her little friends were around her, and I'm down in the water, and I'm trying to encourage her and bribe her and things like that. But it really took her peers to give her confidence, and ultimately, she jumped, and when she jumped, she kept jumping. Boom, one after the other. 
but it had to be some kind of boost of confidence to go for it. And in the scriptures, we can see these different ways that they find confidence, but it wasn't just in their peers. Most importantly, they found confidence in Jesus. Look at John, listen to John 6, 66 to 69. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many were abandoning the faith. It was too difficult for them. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter, he's known for some really dumb statements, but right here, it's iconic. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you have that confidence? Are you living life, you know, just, and you're just lacking this confidence and really knowing who you are because you haven't connected to the Savior of the world, the one who conquered death? Here's your confidence. Not just confidence that I'm going to get an A on my next test or I'm going to jump off that cliff when we go to Lake Belton, but a deeper, lasting, eternal confidence. Evidence number four, as we abide in this love, we do not fear coming judgment. Verse 18, it's important for us to see what he says. He he explains it here. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, perfect love casts out fear. We need to clarify here. This phrase has been misused many times throughout history since it's been written. Slapped on coffee mugs, put on shirts and things like that, and just basically is like your go-to statement for anything that's scary. Well, we do that sometimes with Scripture and we don't look at the rest of the verse, which is called context, and see what he's really saying. What is he saying about fear? What is he saying this fear is about? He's talking about the day of judgment. He's not talking about maybe smaller things of life or even difficult things. He's talking about the judgment day. So why were my kids scared to jump off that cliff? Well, every fear has some potential pain involved, right? That's why it's called fear. They were scared of the unknown. They were scared of heights. They were scared of maybe an object that might be under the water, slapping the water, you know, because you're jumping from so high, all these things. So there's a reason for our fear, and here it is. Their fear was coming because they were fearing the day of judgment. They knew that day of judgment was coming. This fear carries with it the idea of punishment, the idea of uncertainty, right? We feel guilty. But John is saying you don't have to fear because the perfect act of love destroys this fear. It destroys the fear of coming judgment. It brings confidence and helps us see that we can live in the theme verse of this book, which is in 513. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to be fearful. You can have assurance and know that he is yours and you are his. See, it's important for you to know this. There is no love you can find on earth that can completely remove fear. Some of you just got engaged. Some of you are newlyweds. And it's this puppy love right now and you're like getting through it and man, he's my everything and he fulfills and she and... And then you're like, oh, just wait, it's coming. It gets difficult. 
There's struggles, mostly for me, I know, in my relationship, but the idea is there's difficulty, pain, struggle, there's sorrow, there's, there's struggle here, and the reality is that earthly love does not satisfy our need for real, true love. It can help it, it can, can boost it and point us to Jesus, but it can't fill this need. I was reminded of a song by Andrew Peterson. You can look it up later. It's called Love is a Good Thing. And here's a little part of it. It says it'll follow you down to the ruin of your great divide and open the wounds that you tried to hide. And there in the rubble of the heart that died, you'll find a good thing. Love is a good thing. So this isn't this love we're talking about that the world puts out there. This is a love that's full of sacrifice. It's full of pain. It's full of heartache and struggle at times. It reminds me of, you know, when I think of these fears, it also reminds me of a situation we had when our first son was born, Noah. And uh, we had two previous C-sections, so we go in for another surgery, and Noah comes out, and we're all excited, but we really quickly realize that things aren't going well in Candace's recovery. And uh, so she, they basically say, hey, we can't fix this. We need to go back in for surgery. And so I'm in the hospital room holding this newborn boy and I'm looking at my wife in this bed about to be rolled off. The major surgery is like losing blood and all these things don't want to go in too much but I try to give her reassurance looking at her face I still remember it to this day. It's going to be okay. You know, God's with you and, and all these things we try to say. But I knew in the back of my mind, I, I didn't know that she was going to be okay. I know that everything was going to work out. And here I am trying to help her fear and help her overcome it, but not really being ultimately confident in the result. And that's where I just sat. For hours, just sat there with Noah in my arms. And ultimately, thank God, you know, she returned from the surgery and had to throw a picture up there. I got it approved. But uh, it's just a wonderful moment where she was finally able to hold him. Now, that fear was gripping, that fear, and I can't even begin to understand her fear at the moment. But it was like a devastating fear. But that doesn't compare to the fear that comes from really thinking about the day of judgment, standing before God. And really standing there waiting to see, you know, will I be accepted by God? Have I been accepted? Am I truly a believer? That fear weighs heavier than any fear that we can have in this world if we really sit down and think about it and focus on it. So, we all come face to face with final judgment. And John clearly says, those who have confessed Jesus have no reason to fear. Consequently, those who have not trusted Christ have every reason to fear. Only perfect love can cast out fear. And the only place to find that perfect love is in Jesus Christ. It says fear God in Scripture, throughout Scripture, that we should fear God was a great quote that my wife sent me this week. Oswald Sanders says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. When you do not fear God, you fear everything else. 
see, you can't lay a foundation based on experience and emotions. It will leave you a wreck. You will be like building a house on shifting sand. But you can build this house on the one who sacrificed himself for you on the cross. So these last three verses of this passage are really a great summary of what we talked about for the last five weeks. So I'm just gonna read them to help you see about abiding in Christ and loving one another. It says, we love, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, I think we've had enough time over the last five weeks to really understand Obviously, love test number three. Hello, we should love one another. And oftentimes we hear over and over again from this stage, instruction, encouragement, maybe conviction, but we don't take the time to really let it sink in. We don't take the time to really meditate and even confess to get our hearts right to where the Spirit can do this work. Reminds me of a passage I read this week, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And I pray that we're not like this result of what was happening back then. And God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So my fear for you, my fear for me as I study God's word and as I'm in his word, that I hear it so much that my my ears are dull of hearing, that I don't really let it sink in, that my heart is not pricked, and even when my heart is pricked, that I don't respond. There's never any change. I just come here and I sit and I listen and I go out and do the same thing. Well, what's the point? It's a waste of time. You might as well not show up. So I'm begging you. I'm begging you to let the Spirit work. Let the Spirit convict you of not abiding in God. Let the Spirit work and convict you of how you don't love others like you should. Now there's not a lot of evidence maybe in your life right now that you know Jesus. Or maybe you're gripped with so much fear that you can't even see Jesus. So I really want us to take this time, and and I'm asking you, please take this time in these next two songs to let God work. Let this marinate in your heart and your soul. Ask God to do a work in you. Ask him to convict you of sin, maybe apathy, distraction, hatred and unloving attitude toward others confess to God and others I don't care if this time while you're singing you get your phone out and and maybe send a text to confession or, or set up a meeting with someone you need to talk to this week to say I haven't been loving you well maybe it's your spouse who's sitting next to you right now and you need to come forward and pray together and confess And let this time be a time of committing to live a different way. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you to stand. And I'm gonna pray. And then after we pray, I really want this to be a time where you just let this marinate. Let this time be a time of confession.
And if you feel God leading you, even come forward. There's nothing magic in it, but sometimes you need just a change. And you need to be obedient. Maybe make this front of this room an altar and bow before God and pray. Maybe you need someone to pray with. And I ask the elders that are here maybe to spread out so that you can come forward and pray with somebody about a sin that's in your life and that you need to confess. So let this be a time where you don't think about all the other stuff that's out there to do today and this week, but you let God work and let his spirit move. God, we praise you for your son Jesus, the one who removes all fear. Lord, there's judgment coming, and I pray that anyone in here that doesn't know you will know that judgment is coming, and that today they can know that they can trust in you as their Savior, confess their sin, call on your name for salvation, and I pray that they will respond today, but for the rest of us that already know you, convict us, let your spirit work and move us in response to what we've heard. In your name we pray, amen.